Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Lempert. In our news today, we're going to talk all about soil. Then later in the podcast, we will introduce you to Jamie Robertson, a fifth generation dairy farmer, father of three sons who work on the farm with him, and one of the farmer stars on the American farm on history. You won't want to miss what he shares about dealing with bears. Yep, bears. But first, our thought leader is Greg Gershuni, who currently serves as the interim director of the Aspen Institute Energy and Environmental Program and is the managing director and the James E. Rogers Energy Fellow of the program. Now, the Energy Environment Program, one of the longest running at the Aspen Institute, challenges thought leaders to test and shape energy, conservation, and environmental policies, governance systems, and institutions that support the well-being of both nature and society. Greg, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, Greg, tell me first a little bit about the Aspen Institute, what what it's all about, and then I want to talk about this new partnership with the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Sure. So the Aspen Institute is a, a 70-year-old organization. Um, it's We consider ourselves to be an educational and policy group that looks at a variety of different topical areas, uh, kind of all across the board from energy and environment to justice, to education, to foreign policy. Um, And we work with people around the country and around the world on all these different topics. Um, As you said, the Energy and Environment Program is one of the longest running programs. We started in the 60s, um, kind of in response to the environmental crisis that was happening um, around the U.S., and then the energy crisis that happened in the 70s with the uh, oil embargo. And so now we work in a bunch of different areas from clean energy, innovation and technology, to uh, energy policy, to climate and national security, to coastal resilience. And this agricultural and food stream of work is relatively new to us. We've been doing some international food security work for the last uh, five or six years, but doing specifically looking at the U.S. food system, looking at how farmers and ranchers work to be sustainable and to to provide food for the world is something that we're really excited to be looking at. So, Greg, with U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, you're really beginning a new collaboration between food and farm leaders. Tell us a little bit about what what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah, so uh, we're really, really happy to be working with the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Uh, What we are looking to do is bring together thought leaders, experts, you know, people working on farms and on ranches um, all across the U.S. together, um, as well as people uh, on the retail end of food and in restaurants, to talk about what does the supply chain of food and agriculture look like? How do we um, look at the sustainability of the whole system? And what can each of the players do to make the system run better, be more efficient, be more sustainable while still making a living for all the people involved. And so we're going to gather people together to have a conversation. We don't think of ourselves as putting on a conference, but having dialogue where everyone gets a chance to participate and talking about some key questions and key issues about looking at carbon, looking at uh, using metrics and standards 
as well as, you know, kind of the, the idea of stewardship. How do we um, identify the good stewards of the land and people who are keeping their farmland in good condition and being sustainable for future generations? So when you talk about these thought leaders that you're going to have these discussions with, um, obviously farmers and ranchers are part of it. You mentioned retail, you mentioned food service. You know, what's the breadth of, of these discussions across the different channels? Yeah, so it's it's pretty broad. Um, that we we're gonna be we're gonna be putting together this group that is really gonna stretch from seed and soil uh, to to farmers to distributors um, and transportation, all the way to to grocery stores and to other retail food outlets. Getting people from the CEO level, but as well as some experts on sustainability, some folks from academia that have spent a lot of time thinking about this to people from the federal government and state government. So it's a pretty broad group of people. Our theme for our program, the thing that we think we do really well, our, our brand is putting the right people in the right place, talking about the right topic at the right time. And I think that for this gathering is really pivotal in the timing of it and, and the group of people that we're, uh, we're gonna be bringing together. So, you know, I, I hear what you're saying let's move forward into the future. And I want you to give me a timetable for that future. Um, you know, how long do we have to have these discussions to make um, the, the, the points that you talk about, the metrics, uh, the stewardship and so on? Uh, what's, the, what's the timeline for this horizon? So it depends on, you know, on who you ask. What food and agriculture is interesting when you think about it in the context of climate change because it sits on both sides of things. It sits on the, the mitigation side, which is how do you reduce the greenhouse gases being put into the atmosphere, but it also sits on the adaptation side because a warming planet impacts the ability to grow crops, mm -hmm. um, extreme rain uh, washes away soil. So it's, I mean, it's really is the keystone to the whole thing. Um, right. We, it, you know, based on some research that our scientific board has put together, um, we think that, you know, within a few decades, agriculture can actually get to be a net negative emissions industry where it's actually absorbing more carbon into the soil than it's putting out through things like tractors and transportation and methane through animals. Mm. So it, it really can not only contribute to the solution, but it can be one of the primary solutions to climate change. On the adaptation side, there are kind of best practices or better practices that farmers and ranchers can use to reduce the impacts of extreme rain, things like cover crops and other, other things like that. And so I think that if we want to keep the planet to one and a half or two degrees warming, we have to act pretty quickly, but we have a decade or two to really get to where we need to go um, in the agricultural sector. So what is your hope bringing all these people together, um, getting, getting their insights, um, figuring out, you know, what we have to do over the next decade or, or so. Um, what's your hope that this kind of, this kind of group can really force a seat at the table for farmers and ranchers? When I look at the different, and you've worked in government, when I look at the different governmental agencies and the, and the government reports that are out there, 
not as much as I'd like. Um, we don't see farmers and ranchers having a seat at the table for discussions on, you know, nutritional facts labels and, and so on. Do you see an outcome of this giving farmers and ranchers a larger voice? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing that we have to recognize, and you mentioned, you know, I've worked in government for a while before I was at the Aspen Institute, and I live in Washington, D.C., but that solutions don't only come from Washington. Local leadership, uh, individual farmers and ranchers, people who, um, you know, work in city and state and town governments, um, all have really good ideas and solutions. And we're what we're trying to do is bring all of that to the table to find what the best options are, um, because the option that works in Nebraska isn't going to work in Maryland, and the option that works in California isn't going to work in Florida. And so bringing all these different people together, um, I think first and foremost, we'll have an opportunity for them to share ideas and think about what may work for them in their community. Um, but I think the outcome that I'm looking for is for people who are coming from unlikely places, talking to each other, and having conversations that they wouldn't have had normally, because in our other work in the energy space and the other environmental areas, you know, some of the best outcomes come from these partnerships that are formed by, you know, the mayor of a town meeting with the CEO of a company and then building a group that's going to help that person's city, you know, develop in some way, in some sustainable way. And so we're hoping that people through both the dialogue that's going to happen in the sessions that, uh, at the Harvest Forum, but as well as, you know, the breakfast, the lunches, the dinners, the walks, um, the opportunities to talk to each other, will build these relationships that help them get to where they know they need to go in terms of sustainability and climate change um, and, and build those over many years. Well, Greg, it sounds fabulous. Um, thank you. For, for doing it. And also, I hope we'll be able to touch base again and you can share along this path what some of the outcomes are. That would be fantastic. I really appreciate you having me on today. And now, the news you need to know. Have you heard of silvopasture? Well, it's all about bringing benefits to both the herd and to the soil. Farmers working with rotational grazing should check out silvopasture. It's the practice of integrating trees and forage into livestock grazing areas. Advocates report that the benefits are notable in both the livestock and the land. Many farms already have wood lots, and when used for pasture, these wooded areas give livestock shade and allow farmers to get more use out of their land. Before now, resource professionals advised against using wooded areas because if not managed properly, grazing could lead to a loss of plant diversity or soil erosion. Now, all that's changed. There are two approaches to silvopasture, establishing trees into existing pasture or established forages in the woods. But there are some challenges, distance and access to water, establishing young trees and maintaining light levels. When well-managed, animals enjoy the benefits. Essentially, shade is more spread out, so animals can graze in the shade on a hot day. With room to roam while staying cool, livestock are more likely to spread beneficial manure across a wider span of area. This can also reduce water quality issues due to nutrient imbalances in the soil. What grocers need to know is that farming and ranching is changing rapidly. With an eye on sustainability and the other on animal welfare, 
we're creating a new ag ecosystem that benefits the entire supply chain and is aligned with consumer values. And while we're speaking about livestock, the beef industry debuts the sustainability framework. According to Food Dive, the U.S. Beef Industry Sustainability Framework, a voluntary resource developed by the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, was adopted just about a week or so ago by a range of stakeholders across the industry's value chain. The Roundtable represents 30% of the U.S. herd, which accounts for more than 20 billion pounds of processed beef and more than 100 million consumers. This new sustainability framework lays out indicators to assess beef's sustainability, including water and land resources, animal and employee safety, and well-being efficiency and yield, and air and greenhouse gas emissions. This is the first resource to demonstrate U.S. beef sustainability across the full value chain. The framework also includes guidance documents to help ranchers achieve sustainability practices in these areas while maintaining operational and financial success. What grocers need to know is that it's time to reach out to the U.S. beef industry sustainability framework and have a seat at the table and publish these practices to your shoppers to boost their understanding and knowledge about our beef supply and its practices. Now let's shift from livestock to crops. The opportunity for timely corn planting depends on the soil. The U.S. average corn yield is significantly determined by weather conditions during the reproductive and grain filling stages throughout the summer months. However, weather conditions during other seasons, as well as the timeliness of planting, are also known to influence yield outcomes. And talk to any farmer in the past year and a half have been challenging at best. Excessively wet conditions and a slow start to planting this year has raised interest in whether it's still possible to plant corn crops in a timely manner. This will all depend on four specific factors. First, the percentage of the crop already planted. Number two, the beginning date for a significantly late planting penalty for corn yields. Third, the number of days suitable for field work that's needed to plant. And last, the total number of days that are suitable for planting. The bottom line is that the current wet topsoil conditions in the Corn Belt does not bode well for planting the entire U.S. corn crop in a timely manner. Even with that, farmers are a resilient bunch, and estimates are that even with the late corn planting in 2019, yields will be at least 5 to 10 percent above average. What grocers need to know is that while there have been some projections that due to the weather, some food prices may have to rise, corn prices should not be affected. And on the topic of soil health, Syngenta and the Nature Conservatories are collaborating on nature innovation. These two entities are teaming up for a new Innovation for Nature collaboration to promote soil health, resource efficiency, and habitat protection in major ag regions worldwide. They say it brings together Syngenta's research and development capabilities and the Nature Conservatory's scientific and conservation expertise to scale up sustainable ag practices. This collaboration intends to demonstrate just how a company can reevaluate its business strategy by incorporating sustainability science into its decision-making process and engage with farmers in new ways. The organizations are exploring investments in new precision ag solutions, cover crops, integrated pest management, 
biological solutions, remote sensing and analytics, improved seed varieties, and other advances. Key areas include focusing on nature-guided innovation, striving for the lowest residues and crops in the environment, and investing where it matters most to farmers and nature. What grocers need to know is collaboration is the way farmers and ranchers have operated for centuries, sharing experiences and expertise, and so have retailers and their share groups. Now we're starting to see new collaborations, such as this one, where the entire supply chain, including retailers, will profit. Another one of the farmer stars of the American farm joins us today. Kantuk Creamery at Bohannon Farms is a fifth-generation farm that was started in 1907. Today, it contains more than 440 acres and is home to 200 milk cows who produce more than 23,000 eight-ounce servings of milk every day. Jamie Robertson is the patriarch, who, along with his three sons, Cy, Nate, and Bram, is leading the dairy farm into the future. Jamie, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm thrilled to be talking with you today for a couple of reasons. First is that I love watching you and the boys on the American farm. You are the ultimate fun-loving, hard-headed, bearded family. <laughs> the, sec- the second one, am I right? No, we the got beards. One, we got beards. The second one is that my own grandfather is a dairy farmer in Belleville, New Jersey. Ah, Jamie, what do you see as the future for dairy farming? Well, we certainly, um, we, we here in New England are a little different than a lot of other areas of the country, and, and especially in New Hampshire. Um, one thing I would like to say is that my wife is extremely involved in the farm also, and it's actually her, her family's farm that, that we've taken over. So Heather is, Heather is extremely involved day to day, just a little bit camera shy. As far as what I see for the dairy industry, when all three boys decided to come back to the farm here, here in our little valley in New Hampshire, we just couldn't milk enough cows to to support four families on a wholesale dairy operation. Um, not that we wouldn't have liked to, but we couldn't see doing it without about fifteen hundred cows, and we're really kind of maxed out at two hundred cows as far as what we have for for land resources around us. Um, so we we chose to move into a little bit more into direct marketing, and uh, I'm pretty sure that we can make up the cash flow that we need by growing the business by by marketing our our milk direct to customers. So how are you doing that back back the way my grandfather was doing it with home delivery? Is that right? Yeah, that he's in New Jersey, right? Yes. So so we looked at home delivery a little bit, but New Hampshire still pretty rural. We're about an hour north of Boston, um, hour and a half north of Boston, but small towns and we just don't have the population numbers to make an efficient home delivery work for us at the moment. Um, that's not to say it's not in the future as, as communities grow a little bit, but, um, we deliver direct to stores and farm markets is what we do. Gotcha. So uh, let's go back to American Farm. In one episode, you had to deal with bears, really <laughs> big bears attacking your cornfields. I that wasn't staged, right? And and how did you handle it? It's uh, not very well. We probably lost at least ten percent of our silage to to bears last year, which is pretty unusual. In uh, 
usually we have we have a little bit of bear damage here and there, but uh, last year's bear population was huge, and we didn't have any nuts in the woods and not much of anything for berries either, so they were really hungry. We have about 150 acres of corn, and, and we were probably feeding between 10 and 15 bears. They not only eat a lot, but they just knock it all down. Wow. And then when you got done with bears, you also had a problem with rats. <laughs> probably the rat problem came first. That was... Uh, that that's kind of you know especially uh dairy farms where where you kind of got to lay the feed out for the cows to have access to it 24 7 that allows the rats to have access to it 24 7 also and we were certainly feeding an awful lot of an awful lot of rodents that we didn't want to feed i will say i wasn't overly thrilled when the boys came up with the uh with the way to take care of the rat problem but it uh has certainly cut our rat problem an awful lot more than i ever anticipated it would so now that that the four of you, five of you, are stars of the American farm, how has your life changed? Hmm. The cows don't seem to notice a difference. <laughs> Love it. Okay. <laughs> they haven't asked you for your autograph? <laughs> no, no. Um, it hasn't changed a whole lot at this point, which we're really happy with. Um, certainly a little bit more product recognition out there with our brand name, but, but nothing's gone crazy yet. Um, certainly something that we were really really concerned about you know we're we're pretty happy milking cows we'd like to make a better living at it but other than that really the main reason that we decided to take part in the show was we really felt that uh, the american public needs some education on the dairy industry and uh, not that we're the best dairy farm in the world to tell that but we had the opportunity and really felt if this was a way that people were learning about their world and their food that somebody really ought to be there to tell them the story that we think is correct. And and I also think, you know, especially now that you're trying to go direct to consumers um, and, and make deliveries, that brand um, imagery is, is really going to help you do that. We hope so. We hope so. We're very happy about how the show is being received. We see the show as, as you folks do. We haven't, we don't have any insight on what they're going to put on on Thursday nights. We've been very happy and pleased with how they've how they've represented all the farms. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for being on the show, and thanks for joining us here on Farm Food Facts today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us right here on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab. Until next week.